Hi, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Today we're talking with Robert Hill. Robert is a fifth generation contemporary maker out of the Carolinas. He has an extensive family history in muzzleloading and traditional crafts and everything that's kind of associated with that from blacksmithing to leather work to horn making to knife making and then into muzzleloading rifle and smoothbore building. Robert kind of does it all, but what's really interesting about Robert is he's doing all of this while he's still studying in school. Robert is currently a college student and as of recording is on spring break, taking some time away to chat with me and, and to chat with all of you here on the show and share a little bit of his history, his experience, and uh, and some of where he's hoping to take his work in the coming years. I'm Robert Walters Hill, fifth. And the reason I point out that is I've learned, I got started into knife making and making muzzleloader accoutrements, everything from bags to powder horns and, and knives knives being one of my main my main makings um through my grandfather and my father we all worked in the same shop together There's three generations of us with myself being the fifth all working together in my grandfather's shop building rifles and making knives and sewing bags horns things like that so i really started to get into it um i've been exposed to it all my life and been around these these crafts but i didn't really have time with school until COVID hit and I was at home a lot. So I was able to really start getting into making knives and producing a lot of knives and like getting good at it. Yeah. 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 Kind of had a a break there where you could kind Mm -hmm. of let go of the grind and and try something different. Most certainly. So what did that, what did that do for you then? I mean, how long had you been working before that opportunity came up and, and what changed for you when that happened? So I, as far as anything might have changed when COVID is, I, my first knife I ever made was under with, with my father, and I also made a tomahawk at that time. I started when I was about ten years old, and then after that, I kind of just wasn't able to do it because the things that had yeah. to do with school and was all that time was taken up. And really, in the meantime, I was making a few horns doing some leather work with my grandfather. And then when I actually had time and was able to pretty much do a school assignment whenever and didn't have class all day, so I could just do the assignments in the dark, I was able to spend all day long in the shop and be learning and my father showing me things and learning um, a lot to do with the more specialized processes inside of knife making over my the iron work I'd done previously, which um like I'd done a few big gate jobs with my father. Okay. Which, like there's a, a gate in the uh, sculpture gardens of Brook Green Gardens in Merle's Inlet down here. Okay. Which was yeah. a pretty pretty big project that I did all the scroll work for, all the forging. So I'd I'd had a lot of experience with the forging items and, and using a hammer and using tools before I started really getting into the knife making. So that kind of allowed me to skip all of the skill learning and get to the fun stuff. So I was able to be out in the shop really enjoying just making a knife rather than to learn how to use tools as I went by. So I had a lot of build up and then I had a chance to just kind of go wild with it and make things instead of having to be worried about, I got to go to school tomorrow. Or, <laughs> right are at school. That's really neat. So you, you talk about working in your, in your father and your, in your grandfather's shop. Have they, have they always worked together? And, and is this the same kind of family shop 
that's kind of dating back to these five generations, or is that knowledge and equipment kind of moved around as the family has? So our, our shop is, yeah, my grandfather moved this shop. It was a tobacco barn. It's a log building. Oh, nice. He disassembled it and moved it to his property and started using it as a shop, I believe, in the mid-80s. Before that, he was uh, he did wood carvings and figure carvings while he was working full-time at the paper mill. Mm-hmm. So before that, his father was a, a carpenter, a contractor, did some woodworking and, and carpentry work. Before that, there, um, I believe he was a blacksmith or had some blacksmithing background. Yeah. But for the most part, a lot of the gun building and blacksmithing started when my grandfather was making some of his own carving knives and wanted to build a rifle. So unable to get some of the parts or, or afford them, he began to try and forge some of them right. and, and start and at that time, my father was around, uh, I believe, somewhere between the age of 10 and 13. He began to do a lot of iron work. And up until up until right before I was born, that's what my father did full time was he was a, a blacksmith doing ornamental iron work and things. Uh, kind of, he started working with Philip Simmons down in Charleston and started to kind of develop and pull from that style and a lot of things he learned in terms of ornamental iron work came from Mr. Simmons. So it's kind of been a buildup. And because of that, uh, always being there for my entire life, I've always been exposed to it and been right at their feet or in the shop or messing around with something as a child. So it's there, it goes back a little further, but really our three, the three generations that are in the shop now are the only ones who have been in that specific shop. Okay. Yeah. So would you say that it being that growing up in it is what is what kept you interested in it? I mean, there's so much now pulling people all. I mean, there's so many interests and so many hobbies that you can get into and and so many skills that you can go out and study. Um, Did having your father and grandfather in that shop help keep you in it? Or is it the kind of thing that you think you would have always come back to? Um, I believe I probably would have always come back to it because it's really I've been around it since since I was born. That's kind of one of the things that when either my father or my grandfather liked it, it's something I was always around. So things I grew to like, like these skills and, and um, working with tools and making things. And in general, I just like, I, I am a very, I feel, I find myself to be uh, liking to be creative mm-hmm. and liking to be able to make things because it's much cooler when you make something and use it than just going to go and buy it and use it. Yeah. So I think even if I hadn't been around it all the time, uh, like if I had been disconnected from it from my childhood or something, and I probably still would have come back to it. Yeah. Because I, I grew up, they carry me to reenactments, they carry <laughs> me to the North Carolina State Fair. I, I'm always around the things that it, it and it makes me happy to do them and, and know that I'm carrying on something that they, they've always done. Yeah. Well, I can hear it in your voice too. There's a, there's a sense of pride in that, that you're keeping it going and, and doing that, doing that study to carry it forward. I think it's, it's really special. And I love hearing that come out in your voice. 
you've got kind of this family tie and this family connection with all of this. Where are you, I guess, at this time? And, and then, and then where are you planning on taking it in your own, in your own lifetime here and your own time that you have to dedicate to these skills? Is there an area that you're focusing on more or less than, uh, than maybe your father or grandfather have, or are you following in their footsteps pretty closely? Um, well, I'm tending to, I follow pretty closely in the ideas that they, they go with. Like my grandfather, his his favorite, as far as rifles go, there's nothing he loves to build more than a late 18th century mountain rifle. Yep. Is it, he, that's what he loves to build. I mean, that's he good likes, taste. I'm, you, know, you can't argue with that. Oh, yeah. They're... they're delicate beautifully architectures guns and that's I, I like that i like that a, a fair bit but um i'd say i kind of i'd hit one of his things was he he likes to boast that he can do all iron mounts he can forge everything he wants to on the gun mm-hmm. and that's something i try to stick to as well especially being friends with ian pratt and everything you know forging iron work on the gun is that's fun it makes yeah. the gun a whole lot more personal and a little more personalized um so i like to stick to that and that's again following my grandfather's footsteps and my father as well being a, a very accomplished blacksmith you know all about who can who can hammer things the best <laughs> as close as you can get them to your um in shape so i'd say i'm sticking pretty close yeah but as, far as the knives go i i tend to go i go a little bit different direction I keep the same general shapes that I'd say my father's always used and like to like to go to as far as blade styles. Again, it's kind of 18th century, mid mid 19th century style knives, um, which sometimes I differ. Sometimes I try to make a little bit earlier things. I made a few dirks and everything, which are a little you know European stuff yeah. rather than rather than the early American stuff that I'm used to seeing being made around here but other than that we we tend to we're all in the same shop working normally working at the same time so we kind of have a great blend yeah where somebody might point something out and give you an idea on something and then you turn around and do it or if i'm in the shop by myself i might go a completely different direction right <laughs> when nobody's watching you can kind of let it run yeah so i'd say so it makes it both. My, yeah. A little bit of my own artistic, like, um, stylization going a little bit in my own direction. But for the most part, I, I like to keep to what I've seen and and know works well, which is normally coming from my grandfather or father. Right. But again, 18th century, 19th century kind of ironwork and um, rifles and knives, bags, horns. All kinds of stuff. So what drew you then to, to kind of, and correct me if I'm wrong here, but kind of focusing on the knife aspect and the knife creation out of this? I mean, there's so much to make in this kind of era that we're discussing here and in just the muzzleloading era in general. What oh, yeah. was it about knives that kind of pulled you in? One of the things I, I like about the knives is... You think about it, you think about a rifle, large, large canvas, lots of room to do some like artistic decoration. Mm -hmm. The knives, 
allow you to do almost the same. You can put the same little touches and little artistic flair to them with less time invested. And you can make them a little bit easier than, than you would a whole gun. So you're able to, like most times, I make a lot of, I make a bunch of blades. I forge a bunch of blades. And then I go back to write, work on a gun. And then when I get to a standpoint on the gun, I go back and I start working on those knives, whether it be getting them heat treated, putting handles on them, mm-hmm. maybe I'm filing out a guard. While the knives, I make more knives, of course, than, a, than I do guns because I'm really just starting. I've only made, I believe, six or seven um, muzzle loaders. Mm-hmm. So the knives right now kind of act as a, a in-between, like when I'm when I'm kind of tired of maybe losing some inspiration on a gun or something, I'll go and I'll start putting some together some knives. And I find that knives are a little bit quicker to sell. So right. they make money mm-hmm. and, and kind of keep you, keep you from going stagnant on something. You're able to stop, make a quick knife. Maybe you do some engraving or some carving or do something cool to the handle, you know? Yeah. And then you can go back to the gun. Right. But that's that's one of my things. It's like the knives. There's so much you can do with the knives, and every single blade is going to be different. Hmm. So, I find that that's like a just a good way to express myself. I guess. Yeah. So what say it. I think that's that's something that we hear a lot of. Is it's it, I think it's very rare that somebody just makes one thing, and yeah. I, and I think it's good. And I, and I enjoy hearing that not against people who just make one thing mm-hmm. out there, but I, I feel the same way. And a lot of people I talk to feel the same way that you know, a large project is, is a big project. I mean, it's hard to sit down and focus on that and put in your best work constantly, especially yeah. on something like a rifle and mm-hmm. having those kind of smaller pieces to go back to and kind of complete a thought in a, in a quicker manner, so to speak, allows you to to let your mind stretch out or or rest a little bit after the the primary thing. And that's, that's, that's kind of one of the ways I use it because I'll, and it'll be funny because it's always random, like increments of time because Mm -hmm. I, I may, I may work on that gun for like two or three days or I might work on it for a few hours and decide I'm going to work on a knife. <laughs> yeah. Kind of get, I can get sidetracked in the shop, but, um, it, it keeps you from getting bored, you know? Yeah. It lets you give you something to work on while you're not really too enthusiastic about working on something else. Especially if it's something like you're putting in a lock or something on a gun. It's like, well, I'm going to take a break <laughs> and then give you something to do. Yeah. Instead of, sitting there you know right it's uh it's hard to force some of this stuff especially when you kind of get into the more artistic side of things it's it's easy to start to feel rushed or or get anxious about getting something done but um at least i find i never want to push it (laughs) if if i'm Uh, if i don't want to be working on something i shouldn't be working on it especially if it's important (laughs) oh yeah that's that's one of the things i find when like i'm trying to draw carvings or or um or an engraving is I find it best if I just, if I'm, I'm feeling like I can't come up with a design, just sit all of it down mm-hmm. or do something else. Yeah. And the next time, the next time I come back to it, there's ideas in my head and yep. I'm ready to go on it. Yeah. 
So with with those engravings and those carvings, are you are you pulling from you know photographs or or original pieces and and kind of sketching out your own designs, or are you just coming up with it in your head and and applying it directly? Mm. So it's a mixture. Good. Okay, <laughs> that's what I was hoping. Because I, I I have never. I have never looked at something and copied it exactly. Right. I might say, I like the way they did that. And then like replicate, say a, a, a method or the way they've oriented like some scroll work or like a type of engraving, like mm-hmm. a, a little picture or something. But normally I end up altering it completely. Just kind of, maybe I stayed on the lines of that original I was looking at. But normally it does not end up any more than if you'd really studied that one piece and were able to look at it and say, that looks like that one. It normally ends up me taking a, another step in my own head. Mm-hmm. Okay. Like, like making it my own. Yeah. And, and some of the stuff is like, some stuff is completely random. It, it's like just following scroll work rules, like making S scrolls and C scrolls that all can fall together and making all of it flow together with the gun or making my engraving flow on the blade or something. Um, sometimes it's, you know, it's completely random. It's all something in my head that I'm just following a set of guidelines. Okay. Right, to make it work, make the designs work right while being completely my own. Right. Cause it, there is a way you can just throw things together and it not really work right. <laughs> yeah, your your eye can kind of see that every now and then. You'll see something. It's like it's not quite not quite there yeah. yet. And you try your best to avoid it. Right. Sometimes, sometimes it happens. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I'm yeah. I'm kind of a stickler on on the idea of a sketchbook. Is that the kind of thing that that you carry around with you, or is it um, something that kind of lives in the shop, or maybe not even I, at all? I. It's on my school papers. Okay. So when I'm sitting in class, I, I, I draw I draw designs like the whole class period. <laughs> okay. So if you look in my in any of my binders or my, my school notebooks, they're full of drawings on all the margins and the headers and everything. But I do have I do have a sketchbook. I I, I don't like carry it. Oh, excuse me. I don't carry it around all the time. Mm-hmm. Uh, sometimes it makes it in the shop. Sometimes it doesn't. Uh, a lot of times it's just whenever I go on a trip or somewhere, like like on in the car, I, I'll carry a book and I'll I'll draw in it. <laughs> so a lot of times it's, and then normally I, I kind of I've learned that I kind of have a photographic memory. So a lot of times I can see the things I draw when I go back in the shop. Okay, and that bothers. You don't have to carry the book. You just you just kind of <laughs> have. That. But I do have a sketchbook. Yes. <laughs> okay. No, that's really I, interesting. I, it, it's lots. It's it's spread everywhere. But yeah, there, there is one. It's not a collection, but it is it does exist. Right. Well, I think that you're you're drawing the stuff out. Um, is something at least in my background um, as an illustrator, I've really mm. fallen in love with. And just knowing that you're drawing in class, you know, is, is really good. I just love to hear that. Um, I think I, that's a really special time to be drawing. You know, you want to keep your grades up and everything, yeah. but 
Um, there are well, many years of drawing in class. That it makes me smile to hear that. Yeah, it's um, I'd say it's probably my favorite thing about school. <laughs> it's that, that and being like being around your friends and stuff. But as far as and I, you do some excellent artwork, I, I love you. Love you, little memento mori thing. Oh, that's, thank you. That's You're always too cool kind. to see. Um, but yeah, drawing in class, you know, you finish taking notes off of a slide or something while you're waiting while they're talking, you're just scribbling around <laughs> drawing and drawing rifles and knives and stuff. But it's, um, yeah, in class drawing, that's always, always do it. <laughs> you, you mentioned here being, being in class and being around your friends, what do they think uh, of your interest in, in muzzleloading and, and the accoutrements and things? Do they think it's a little out there? I mean, uh, that's something we hear about a lot in muzzleloading is trying to understand the youth, you know, not to sound like an old guy there, but I'm curious. I, I, I understand what you mean there. Um, really, whenever I tell you, it's surprising when I tell somebody that, that I do blacksmith work and I, I make knives and, and build guns. They're normally surprisingly interested and like, that's cool. It's cool that you can do that. And which, I mean, that always surprises me, but now I've kind of gotten used to it. It's like, I didn't expect it. I didn't expect that. I expected there to be like, that's weird. That's, that's, we don't, nobody else does that. Mm-hmm. But no, they're like, that's interesting. That's cool. I, I like that. And I, I, I guess that just catches me off guard normally because it's not what I'm expecting from like a college group, but surprisingly they seem to be interested, hmm. which is a good thing. Yeah. Certainly a good thing. Just imagine somebody seeing you draw some like ultra traditional scrolls on your, on the margins in a lecture hall and thinking, what's this guy doing? <laughs> I, nobody's ever said anything to me about, about it, but they have looked at me and it, I can't tell if it's a, a look of, that's cool or that that's like well, you're not paying any attention attention yeah I already I learned to write very fast draw <laughs> <laughs> so, so more right <laughs> but um no I I've got I ha- I guess somebody had said something before but they it was it was good they were like well that looks really cool I like the way that that flows. Which I was like, oh, good. That's that's the whole point. Of trying to make <laughs> right. And again, from the uneducated eye, if someone just looks at that, it could either be they they might not know what they're looking for, or it could be it looks good. Somebody can just look at it at a glance and say it looks good. Mm-hmm. You know, it it looked good naturally. No, but, kind of goes you know, into the kind of the golden mean. You know, mm-hmm. in art and design and math and science and things. What do you What do you think on that? What's your take on that kind of stuff? Um. So the gold mean. It makes sense because if you draw like a scroll by that, it looks pretty and it looks proportioned and right. But looking at a lot of original guns, and what can look good as well, might not follow that. It could be a scroll that has a different shape or it's not as closed or it's not as complete. And it, it still looked good and it, it looks more natural, I guess, as opposed to even though that gold means is pretty natural. It's um sometimes a more, I, I guess, um, I guess we're looking at the term Rococo kind of 
um, abstract scroll can look just as good. Yeah, is what I think. Because yeah, I think- you might you might be filling a space. Yeah, and that's need a different shape than a, a traditional fully golden mean scroll. You know, mm-hmm. which it's applicable. All all of it can be mixed, intermixed, and mingled. Um, I don't I don't ever go and draw a golden mean scroll. I normally draw it by eye to what I think looks right and and looks proportioned. But it it it, it can be used. People do use it. And I mean, it, it's proven it. it's an attractive shape. Yeah. I was like hearing, you know, to to me, it's it's kind of an, an interesting thing because it's like a, I think my father described it as a, a mathematical way to describe or try to define beauty in nature. Yeah. You know, so there are times where mm. like you see it in a leaf, you know, and it's this natural thing, but there are times when you see it and it's just like, oh yeah, that's the that's the golden mean. Like, yeah. you know, you can kind of identify those proportions. Mm-hmm. Um, but I think you're exactly right. When you're looking at a lot of this original stuff, uh, you know, it doesn't necessarily even have to be the curves in a carving. You know, it could be the curve yeah. in a horn or a knife or yep. the engraving, uh, especially. Obviously, that's mm-hmm. where a lot of that stuff gets pulled from. Um, yep. But you hit the nail right on the head there. You're filling that space. And sometimes that more natural or, you know, more off kilter, so to speak, angle and, and way of filling a space feels feels more natural and feels more mm-hmm. right i think and, and what i'm thinking about when i say that as a specific example is i think it's on I, I see it on some rifles like that where the comb it's got a little molding around the front of the comb and then it rolls down onto the wrist mm-hmm. it seems like those scrolls are never circular like so many of them are like oval kind of shape instead of being uh, like like spirally yes which is that, that's kind of what i was thinking of when i said that um but yeah it's sometimes it's just filling a space and do something a little not quite so perfect as a golden mean <laughs> i want to jump back um to your work real quick if we could i've got my one screen here up to to keep an eye on your work as i'm as i'm talking to you to kind of get some ideas and things Uh, you kind of on your instagram here have a lot of knives and Mm -hmm. and a little bit of gun stuff but you you get into uh where you're taking the class with ian pratt and ken gahagan at the southern ohio artisans workshop could you talk a little bit about that class and and what that was like for you so the the class with Ian and Ken, it was a tremendous experience. It was, I mean, it was fun. We were up there for several days and you kind of just, you got up in the morning, you went and ate breakfast, you, you started work. Uh, you had two great minds to kind of help you point you around and, and give you pointers and uh, assist you on designing things or any, anything you needed to accomplish as far as the mechanics of the gun as well. And I mean, it's, I, I think I was got the youth scholarship to go up there and it was a pretty good experience. I took off school to go up there, which is nice. <laughs> good. I, I took off school and uh, I got to work on a rifle that I had started. I, I started it. Um, it was one I forged all the hardware on. It's the forged butt plate, the forged trigger guard. Um, I later, there's pictures of it. I later put a, I put a captured patch box on it mm-hmm. and it's, um, 
it was a pretty pretty fun experience just being around other people who were also building guns and and made some friends got to work around ken and ian um just a very friendly environment and easy to get a lot of work down done because it was like there's no deadline there was no no pressure on it you just worked at your own pace and did, did whatever you felt like doing on the gun that day lots of jokes and 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 fun to be had i guess <laughs> um yeah that that rifle was was fun to build it was a little short gun it was a thir- 37 inch 62 caliber barrel on it oh my i built it kind of an earlier style with really no particular school in mind mm-hmm. it was kind of the hill school as we'll call it someday right I, there you go. <laughs> we, we've we've been trying to point ourselves in a direction where our work's pretty, pretty distinctive and like we're not really copying anything. We're pretty yeah. well making making our own own school there. Um, which my my grandfather's been at it for a while, making his own kind of ideas. I believe it's almost almost forty years or so. He's been building rifles now. Wow. Um, and then, um, of course, my father and I started about the same time on the rifles. He's been doing the ironwork for a while, but we just started on the rifles about the same time. About the same time I started on the the knives, really heavy. Okay. Um, so we kind of we built our first rifles together. I built a kind of a North Carolina style rifle after um, Robert Hughes, which, if I remember correctly, the the pattern that Mister Kibler, Jim Kibler, uses for his his Whitson rifle. Mm-hmm. I believe Robert Hughes was um, taught Whitson. Okay, if I remember correctly. So they're kind of the same shape. Yeah, they're, they're pretty much the same, the same rifle profile. But I took that and that was the first rifle I ever built was a, a, a mountain rifle. So again, that goes back to my grandfather's love of them. Uh-huh. He was like, "Here, this is what I want you to build." That's <laughs> a that's an excellent shooting little forty five caliber, but. Um, yeah, we and with the forest hardware, we kind of go our own direction with that. And you you have to with the forest hardware. You can replicate some earlier pieces, but it's kind of like you don't have to go by what a cast brass guard already looks like. Okay, you can make whatever you want it to look like. Um, but yeah, that, we we definitely kind of try to pull off from mainstream cast parts and with the forged iron. So what do you, what do you mean by that when you're talking about changing up, you know, changing from what a, a cast brass trigger guard looks like? Are you talking like adjusting the bow or, or adjusting some of those curves, you know, kind of the proportions of it? What, what kind of goes into that thought process? Yes. Yeah, so like, I like to make, when I make a, a an iron trigger guard, of course, this is applicable in certain situations, like mm-hmm. on these earlier rifles with a lot of German influence and things. I, I like to make them with the, a large, like, lug bolster kind of thing. Okay. Right? Where the, the bow feeds out of the, the um, front extension, the front finial. Um, and then part of what I mean by that is when you do that and when, you, when you've got your bow forced out, you can make your bow whatever length, you know, you can make your um your your rail whatever length. You can make your curl wide. You can make it skinny. You know, your little um, rear curl there. Mm-hmm. Um, 
You make your rear finial shaped however you want to. You can leave extra material in spaces for file work or say an inlay of some sort. Okay. Or simply an application. Like uh, I believe Ian and Ken did a rifle together uh, and they put on their forest hardware, they, they left material in certain spaces so they could kind of um, add brass brass pieces to it, you know? Yeah. Just to um, implement it, give a little implementation of the brass application and make it a little bit shinier, I guess. <laughs> um, but just stuff like that and the file work you can do with that extra extra material, those bolsters, I always do some decorative file work instead of just leaving them plain. Um just stuff like that is kind of what I mean. Okay. You know, you say the lines of a traditional looking trigger guard because that's what's been used and that's what obviously was liked the most. And it still is because they're graceful and pretty, but you're able to do some little changes. It's, it's a lot of it's little details, you know, mm-hmm. able to add something to personalize it because somebody might not have thought of that or it, it gives a special charm to it, you know? Yeah. Yeah, it's but, those little touches that can really make something sing. And, and that's kind of what I mean by it. It still looks like a trigger guard, still follows the lines of a, 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 an original trigger guard, but has some extra things to it. It's kind of the fun, and that's, again, the fun and the irons. It's, it's really moldable, you know, being able mm-hmm. to go from, from a bar to making what you want. You really have an opportunity to, to kind of control that process or maybe not control, but maybe let it guide you, you know, on, on what it wants to be. Yeah, m- most certainly. It's, um, and a lot of times the certain elements of your trigger guard may depend on the piece of wrought iron you're using. Okay. Depending on how, how clean it is, how, how pure it is. Some pieces have really coarse grain. Some pieces really, really fine grain. Some pieces, lots of inclusions. Some pieces, almost no inclusions. And that can affect your bends in your trigger guard. And, um, like, the way we make that kind of like bolster there between the extension and the, um, and the bow mm-hmm. is I upset that. Okay. So I, and like, I, I might start with a piece of round bar of kind of large stuff. And I, I start to I, I upset it and kind of shoulder it over. So I start to make my flat extension, my flat finial. And then I clamp it in the vise. I get it hot again and clamp it in the vise and I beat that thing until it's a 90-degree angle. Oof. So you got to have some pretty clean stuff and keep it very hot. So you get that nice 90-degree corner over that bolster before you start to hammer it back in on the backside of the bolster, give you that kind of recurve, which you see a lot of those earlier guards have. Right. Kind of recurves up, and there's a little bit of the finial inside the bow, which is kind of, kind of difficult to do. Yeah, that's a tough thing to do in just a – you know, you can kind of – remove material as much as you want mm-hmm. but to, to get force that to shape that's something man yeah. wow but and it's stuff like that and if you're making a like a later mountain guard they're a much simpler bend they don't have that big chunk there and they got um you pretty much can do a lot of them out of a piece of flat stock that you don't need to upset quite as much like i know herschel house uses he, he squeezes it together okay just right there with a thinner piece of material he just kind of pins it together and bends it over. Hmm. Um, you get kind of the same look there. But, again, that's kind of branching off and doing things a little different way than what everybody else is doing. Yeah. 
Are you working primarily then with, with rot or are you using some, you know, regular steel or mild steel for other things? Um, so most of, most of the trigger guard stuff is wrought iron. I've made, I think one of my butt plates is wrought iron. The other one was a piece of, um, was a piece of mild steel I had in the shop hmm. that was just the perfect thickness and, and, and width. <laughs> so I was like, I'll use, I'll use that. That's yeah. already how I need it to be. Cause a lot of times the wrought iron that we, we got around here is, is like wagon tires. Okay. And they're kind of thick. Yeah. Most of the ones we have here are kind of thick and you got to kind of resize it. You, you had to, you had to um, kind of fuller it out and get it planished out to a nice flat kind of even sheet. It's a little bit thinner because those, but a lot of those original butt plates are very thin. Yeah. Yeah. There's nothing to <laughs> them almost. Not much extra material. And the more material you got, the more firework you had to do to make it look. Right. <laughs> yep. So it, it's it's really opportunistic. If I have a really good a piece of material that's just right, that might be mild steel, I may use that. Uh, but the trigger guards, I have a lot of wrought iron that's just right for that. And I got that from Mr. Wayne Estes, old Stoner Creek. Oh yeah. Uh, <laughs> he he said, hey, hey, I got I got you some I got some some bars some um, good round bar stock and some of it is excellent. Um, some of it's usable, but a lot of it, a lot of it is really good. Hmm. It just forges smooth, which I, I like that. I like to not have to reweld my material constantly. Right. Cause sometimes if your rod iron starts to split apart on you, you kind of clean it up the best you can, flux it and force weld it together that's just no fun. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, forge welding. If is... you can avoid that, yeah. avoid. It. But mm. yeah, it's this um, whatever I find the best piece of best dimensions of material around the shop. Mm -hmm. All of it, I I try to age everything anyway. Okay. So I, I give a, I try to do a decently distressed look on most of the most of the pieces we do. Okay. With the I did that uh, mahogany pistol I did recently. I was just looking at that. Golly, that's a that's a beauty, Robert. I, I decided that I wanted to <laughs> thank you. I decided that I wanted to gray it, do that French gray finish on it. Yep. And I think I put like navel jelly or something that's phosphoric acid ospo on it, and it just turned it nice and gray. And I did a few coats of that, and it made a cool looking finish. It's it's pretty pretty rust resistant. I was surprised. Um, for it being not browned or, or blued or anything, mm -hmm. I guess that phosphoric acid eats away enough of the surface, like pores and striations on the on the steel, to make it hard for rust to grip on. Interesting, because so, that's what I've noticed is a, a lot of stuff that you can get a really fine finish on, on some things, like with a little bit of acid, mm -hmm. like some kind of acid, like bluing solution. I, I found that if you take to like a 220 grit or so on a piece of steel and then you like blew it and let that sit there for a second, like cold blue works fine. Um, and then the steel will it back off and it just makes it so slick. Ah. And I kind of, I kind of am thinking that it might be, it just kind of eats away a little bit of the, the sandpaper, like the grooves from any of the sandpaper might've made those little micro grooves yeah. and just nice and slick. Huh. Which is 
I don't know if that's true or not, but it certainly feels like it. As <laughs> so I like to do that sometimes. Yeah. Um, and that's whenever I'm making a knife that's not aged, we normally do a, a cold, a pretty dark cold blue finish on it, just as rust resistance. And it'll hold up in kitchen use with lemons and, and dishwater. So, you know, it, it must be pretty tough. Right. This podcast is brought to you by Thor Bullets. Thor Bullets are a premium full-bore muzzleloader bullet designed specifically for modern inline rifles. Thor Bullets do not require plastic sabos or belts to be fired, meaning less cleaning for you between shots. The patented copper base creates an airtight seal, giving you greater distance and accuracy. Thor's unique engineering allows the bullets to retain 95% of their weight upon impact, and the controlled expansion ensures large, easy-to-follow blood trails. Thor bullets are currently available in a 50 caliber version that is sized to your specific bore. Thor is also expanding into a new 45 caliber bullet designed for faster 1 in 24 and 1 in 22 twist inline rifles. For more information on these great bullets, visit www.thorbullets.com. We'd like to thank Thor Bullets for their sponsorship of this podcast. This podcast is brought to you by Muzzleloader Magazine, the publication for traditional black powder shooters. Since 1974, Muzzleloader has been the leading magazine devoted to traditional black powder hunting and shooting. Each issue is jam-packed with articles on hunting, shooting, gunsmithing, do-it-yourself projects, living history, American history, book and product reviews, and much, much more. Muzzleloader Magazine is the best traditional muzzleloading magazine, bar none. I'd like to thank Jason at Muzzleloader Magazine for his continued support of I Love Muzzleloading and the I Love Muzzleloading podcast. I don't care what you're into. If you're interested in muzzleloading, this is the kind of magazine I think you need to check out. I've been a fan of Muzzleloader Magazine even before the sponsorship. Uh, I've always been impressed with what Jason has been able to put out with Muzzleloader Magazine, and it really means a lot for him uh, to be supporting I Love Muzzleloading and our efforts over here. Thank you, Muzzleloader Magazine, for your support. What was the, the kind of inspiration uh, for that mahogany pistol? Because I've got it up here. It's a pretty long barreled forty-five caliber. It looks like here. Yeah, yeah. it's a it's a 12-inch barrel. Um, this is, I think it's a three-quarter barrel, three-quarter inch, I think. See the three-quarter or thirteen-sixteenths. Um, but I bought two of those barrels from Mister Ed Rail. Oh, okay. I bought them at, I think, Knoxville, at the Knoxville show. But I bought them. He had two of them there, and he said he'd said he had them marked something, and I said I'll buy both of them, and he lowered the price for me. So I bought both of them, and I have the other one still in the shop. I haven't used it yet. Okay. But the inspiration was I like a longer pistol. I just feel like they look nice and long and slender. Yeah. And I, I routed that barrel channel at the house because it's a straight barrel. And then I, I, because it was a 45 and I wanted to put a pretty small ramrod channel in, I hand cut the ramrod channel, which came out surprisingly straight. That was the second one I'd ever hand cut. First <laughs> uh, one being on a, that hickory pit, that 66 caliber. And I hand inlet the barrel and <laughs> And the Ramrod channel on that one. But I I just wanted a small, slender gun 
that my idea was a Charleston furniture maker decided to build a gun. Okay. Because Charleston was a large port that imported a lot of mahogany at one point. In fact, we have we have a lot of mahogany. I, I don't know exactly where its origin is, but it is some it's somewhere from either South America or, or Central America area, maybe some of the islands. But it's um it's some of it's almost blonde and some of it's like deep, deep red. Hmm. And I can't tell if it's like sapwood and heartwood. Okay. Some boards are some boards are completely blonde. But we redid my grandmother's kitchen all in mahogany. So we were doing a lot of cabinetry work and I thought about it and I thought, well, I could certainly I have planks thick enough to get a pistol. I have we have some planks that I have a little small fowler drawn out on that <laughs> we're build at some point out of that mahogany. Um but the inspiration was, I'd say, looking at a lot of mahogany came through Charleston. So let's make it look like a 19th century um, gunsmith, well, cabinet maker or furniture maker decided he had got him some gun parts and went to building a, 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 a pistol. And that's kind of the idea behind the German silver and everything on it. So it's mm-hmm. a little bit later time period than, the, the, um, than what I would normally build in the 18th century. So I went with German silver to kind of complement my dark staining of the mahogany because I was surprised. It started out uh, – there's some pictures of it unstained. It started out like a, a almost a creamy brownish-pink color. Yeah. And then I put that nitric acid on it, and it turned this deep, rich red, and I guess that's a mahogany red. <laughs> and – I just I felt like I needed to have everything else bright, like the trigger guard and the the um, and the barrel and the lock. Just have them kind of bright gray, which I like the way it's, it looks. It's got I kind of like swole. I did a little swell to the um, the butt of it. Yeah, it's a very slender pistol. It is. I I love very, the very slender. I love the shaping of your lock plate mortise as it comes around. It, when you said and, and the shape of the butt too, um, mm-hmm. it it it, it kind of it makes sense to me now. And maybe it sounds a little silly, but those look like curves and shapes that a furniture maker would apply. Like I can see kind of the the sh- the curve of the of the seat of a chair as it comes yeah. around, kind of on on the butt of it there, and just that and gentle break between the lock plate mortise and the grip is just is really exquisite. Yeah, I was thinking on making the grip out like that was, I was thinking about like a claw footed chair. Or something. Yeah, yeah, okay. And I had to swell out, but I didn't. I didn't really have enough. I didn't feel like I. It would be appropriate to carve the claws on there. <laughs> <laughs> Although that would have been kind of cool. Yeah, maybe maybe that's what the other barrels for. <laughs> yeah, maybe that's what. But uh, that's kind of the idea there. It was like this is a Charleston furniture maker. He was going to build him a gun. Let's make it look like that. Yeah. Mahogany leftover from a chair, a ship of robe. But that was kind of my inspiration there. So do you have kind of stories that go along with or or kind of those initial concepts that go along with a lot of the pieces that you make? Not really. The reason behind that one was it was mahogany, and I was trying to think of what would be a rational reason yeah. for the mahogany use. Because I think – was Isaac Haynes rifle was mahogany, I believe. Okay. And there aren't too many others that were recorded mahogany. Right. So 
I was thinking this is going to be a little little out there using mahogany, but I, I, I'm I can make sense of it. Yeah. For uh, the only other gun I really say has any kind of story to it is is the the my painted gun, my green and mustard yellow painted gun, <laughs> in colors on a very English Fowler with a long 47, 40, 47 and a half. It is forty eight inch barrel, um, but that's about the only thing I have a story on is some somebody got it and, and painted it. It might have <laughs> painted for something and somebody painted it. Right. But other than that, I, I don't. The stories are fun. I love reading people's stories when they write them about a gun. <laughs> it is funny to hear, but for the most part, could come up with them. Right. It's probably be very fun to come up with them, but I just haven't bothered really. Yeah. Well, what other kind of research then goes into to making the the knives and the guns that that you've been making here, especially lately? Are you paying a lot of attention to kind of the contemporary space? Or are you kind of you know pulling from your your father and grandfather and then some of the classes that you've taken? I've been as far as studying this stuff, I, I look at a lot of contemporary examples because while there's a lot of excellent original gun makers with the amount of time and and our resources today a lot of the guns that are being built contemporary are just a lot of them are above the original rifles mm-hmm. you know as far as execution and, and some techniques I, i'm not taking anything away from the original rifles yeah. some pretty cool original guns but as far as if i'm looking at a lot of architecture or carving styles and engraving, looking at people like Ian and, and Ken and Brad, Shane Emig, um, the, the, and all, that's just some of them I'm thinking of right now. Right. There's so um, many, you can't name them all. <laughs> all of these great, great gun builders. It's like, these are good places to look because these guys are, a lot of them, that's what they do completely for a living. Mm-hmm. So if that's somebody that spends their entire time studying original pieces and building things that, that that are drawing from those original pieces, I can look at that and get a sense of the original pieces as well as the contemporary. But because because my grandfather has such, has a pretty extensive library of books, I, I'm always looking through books of originals as well. Good. You see, see all kinds of stuff and. A lot of the more fun stuff I see is some wacky stuff that some guy did on on an original gun. <laughs> but so I I can't really point out exact resources. Yeah. Like I look at Bill Ivey's book a lot. I, I love the two Moravian the Moravian gun builders books, and um, Mr. Michael Briggs's books on um on the North Carolina rifles because mm. really. Kind of following following footsteps of my grandfather there, the Voglers in in Salem and yep. that area, those are some of my favorite guns. Okay, I, yeah, I like I like the kind of North Carolina Lexington mix architecture there. It's kind of the guns are a little bit slimmer at this period, and they just looks. I just like that look a lot, and their engraving is. I always like their engravings and carvings as well. So that's something I, I kind of look at as also when I'm when I'm studying and, and looking at what I might want to do. Right. 
But so books like that, again, North Carolina, a lot of North Carolina focus. That's kind of where my grandfather's side of the family came from is side of North Carolina, the coast of North Carolina. There. Okay. So but kind of drawing on those roots and, and following, following that idea. Yeah. Well, it's such a hotbed of, of American history too. the Carolinas. Oh, yeah. I mean, it's got to be everywhere <laughs> down oh, there. It is living in Georgetown, right outside of Georgetown and Plantersville. We've got all kinds of stuff, everything from early Red War history to way before that and all the way up through a lot of plantations right down the road from my house. So it's fun. It's also cool. We get to be involved with a lot of restoration on some of these houses and doing ironwork for them and okay. a lot of the historical upkeep on all these old, old houses. Um, and, of course, one of our continual projects that's been going on since my my grandfather bought the house was um is the house the summer house for Chicora Wood that was owned by uh, the governor Austin uh, governor Austin and his daughter of South Carolina and this house was built in 1790 and we're still rolling around keeping it up wow it's um quite quite a project all the time but. oh I bet. It keeps you keeps you in the spirit and keeps you in the game of I'm building 18th century rifles and working and staying in an 18th century house. <laughs> <laughs> That's something really special. Jeez. Yeah. But yeah, so I mean, it, it's a it's really a shame that we don't. It's so hard to find a lot of the South Carolina rifles that may have been made or kept in South Carolina. But with my my father's museum experience and working as director of the county museum we have access to a lot of south carolina museums through his friends being other directors and things like that mm-hmm. um, well, the lexington county museum has one of the largest collections of south carolina maize rifles so we get to handle them and see them whenever we go up there like quattle bomb and people like that okay um we also made a discovery one day <laughs> There was a record of a rifle being made or having been made by um, Captain John Murphy. And it was very interesting. It was made in 1813, 18, I believe. Okay. Um, it had a beautifully done silver plate on the top of the barrel. It's the four stocks missing. We only have the buttstock and the barrel, and I believe a piece of the lock. We don't have it. The, the family has it, but we got a lot of pictures of it. got to handle it. But it's got an almost Lexington, um, Kentucky, Lexington, Kentucky-style patch box. Huh. It's a cat patch box, which is what was interesting, um, with a, like a, a, a hidden hinge, one that's got the bar through the wood underneath right. the, the box. Um, his engraving is... It looks like a trained English engraver did all of it. Which huh. is what it, is. it employs English borders. His letters are like a English block lettering. Uh-huh. So he was in King Street, which is only like 45 minutes from the house, which is kind of cool. Was a gunmaker, and, and that that early right right down the road, basically. Yeah. And then the best part about it was here we are holding a John Murphy rifle, and Bartell, which was a German who lived in King Street, 
and there's a road named after everything. And he wrote down journals. He has a journal of, and his son as well kept a, a extensive journal of his day to day tasks. And he mentions taking rifle. He was building himself a rifle. He said, taking rifle to Captain John Murphy. <sighs> and it was like, he was carrying his gun to John Murphy. And here we are holding a gun to John Murphy build, which is kind of cool. You could link it back to, Jeez, to yeah. the journal, 18th century journal. <laughs> but <sighs> uh, that's one of the things is um, seeing South Carolina guns because our South Carolina history is, is cool. But there's so many North Carolina guns. Yeah. It's like an abundant resource that if you want to draw from North Carolina influence, there's books and books and books about <laughs> North Carolina rifles. But it's um again that's that's part of the thing one of the things we kind of tend our style towards North Carolina stuff. Yeah. Well, being there with that abundant influence, I mean, it'd be hard to not make a North Carolina gun, you know. <laughs> Most certainly. You yourself, I mean, you're you're still fairly young. Um, not mm-hmm. not trying to leverage on that, but what other what tips would you have for some aspiring craftsmen out there? You know who who might be you know younger than you or might be older than you that are are listening and kind of want to hear about you know what what your thoughts on on getting started would be. Um. Well, do whatever you can to get involved in. If you're doing 18th century stuff, you're doing 19th century stuff even 20th century stuff like we we do um demonstrations at a 20th century living history farm that my father has incorporated into his his museum and and they they run a living history farm any of that stuff um if it's a craft involving whatever time period doesn't matter if the community you're getting into is directly associated with that craft but even just that time period get involved say you're just on a forum Maybe you're just on like the American Long Rifle Forum or one of those other muzzle-loading forums, or um, try to go to a show. Maybe, maybe like you got a, a, a show that's a big show. Maybe like Lexington, the CLA show. Maybe you go to the Knoxville show. It's a little bit smaller, a little bit more personal with other makers and builders. Um, I mean, that's really all I can say is other than the traditional, you know, study and look at original pieces and read what you can about things. We have the internet today. You can find all kinds of things through the internet. It's, it's, I guess it's just pushing yourself to jump into it because hmm. you don't, nobody says you have to, you have to be absolutely perfect. Your first time, your first time you, you, you make a rifle or even you do a horn or sew a bag. Every time you do it, you'll get better. So really get involved with the communities any way you can. If you can't, that's okay too. If you can, it's all to your benefit. Mm -hmm. Um, Just start somehow, some way, just start going on about whatever you plan to do. And the more you do it, the more you read about it, the more you'll pick up on things and learn things about the process. And of course, there's so many contemporary makers of everything, whether it be bags, horns, knives, guns, any kind of accoutrements um, of any time period. Try to find a way to talk to some of the, the contemporary makers who are, who you want to talk to. And that, that's what the shows are good for. Mm-hmm. And the forums is it's like 
especially the forums, because like, I can just post something on here as a question. And some guy who I might never see in my life, but I see his work on, on the forum or in a magazine, he can respond to me. So, you know, things like that. Talk to people, uh, get on forums, go to events, anything like that. And, of course, Muzzleloader magazine. <laughs> that's, that's a good way good way to see other people's work. Yeah, that's a, that's a great way to have it kind of just delivered right to your door. <laughs> yeah. And, of course, then occasionally you may get to deal with Mr. Gatliff. Yeah. Mr. Jason Gatliff, who's a, a pleasant fellow. Most of the time. I got to get on the pleasant side, you know. He's a little warnery with me now and then. Oh. <laughs> hey, hey, I don't know what you did to him. <laughs> the last question I have for you is, is where can mm -hmm. people find your work? You know, that we've been talking about it now for quite a long time, and I'm sure folks are wondering, you know, wanting to see some of it. So where can people go to see it? The best way to, to really be able to see my work, uh, see my work as of right now, it's going to be through my Instagram uh, at Hill and Hill underscore Forge, but I also through well whenever I have time, I say frequently it's sometimes post my work on the American Long Rifle Forum. Um, it I normally don't post it in the for sale stuff. I normally just post it in contemporary accoutrements. Hmm. Um, normally it's knives. Um, I believe I've had some some horns on there before. And a, a spoon, I think. I think I posted a wooden spoon one time, or maybe my, my buddy Mark posted. But as far as right now, I'm I'm trying to formulate a, a setup for a website. Oh, to nice. Kind of start posting my stuff. It might be a simple blog spot or something, but kind of like Contemporary Makers is run. Yeah. Um, but as of right now, Instagram and the LR forum. And nice. you, I normally post pictures, and I mean, if you reach out to me i might i might have it for sale who knows <laughs> well that's good yeah i notice here your instagram says that you're an entrepreneur so I, I like to see that i like to i like to see that there's a little bit of that business mindset behind there yeah i, I posted that on there uh, I, I i was making the account and i made it a business account instead of like a personal account and i was like i'll select entrepreneur because that's kind of what i'm doing <laughs> kind of building a business yeah so is that, is that part of your post-school plan, or, or are you going to uh, kind of be <laughs> doing the 9-to-5 deal and, and making stuff on the side? So my current major is anthropology and geography. With I'm leaning strongly on the anthropological side uh -huh. and looking at cultural anthropology. Oh, which wonderful. Art stuff. Yeah. And I'm thinking of picking up an art minor. Nice. So that I can these um, – I can take some of these uh, metalworking classes at, at school just just to get a little bit of sense of um, a true like a traditional schooling and some of these things. Like uh, one of my buddies is one of the professors at Coastal, and he does a chasing and represent class and casting and stuff. And that'll kind of they have a big foundry at Coastal, so I'm going to be able to kind of utilize that. And we have a makerspace at Coastal that has a 3d printer open to student use oh nice kind of like i'm thinking i can print parts and if i want to say pr like carve a pattern or something or take one of my um one of my forge guards and sand cast it yeah and brad maybe because i want to have one of my one-off guards 
as brass or something, I can, um, I'll have access to a, a ready to go foundry all the time. Oh man. I but, love that. And if I pick up the art minor, I'll be able to apply it. Those classes will apply to my, my, my degree, you know? Yeah. But as far as I'm concerned, I don't really have a specific like degree job that I want to jump right into when I leave school. Yeah. I'll probably kind of swing around with the, the guns and, and knives. And it, hopefully there's a lot of historic sites around here. It's always a possibility that I, I get involved with one of them and, and become some do, do research on it or something as an anthropologist while still being able to retain the build, making knives and building rifles and doing all the accoutrement, other things. Mm-hmm. Um, because that falls into what we consider experimental anthropology in the field. Right. So I'm, re, I'm making and using technologies that are from the past and creating them with methods from the past. So it kind of applies directly to my field. Yeah. The things we're already doing. So it's kind of, I've got it all tied together. <laughs> it's got a neat little bow on it there. I love that. Yep. We're tied together. Got to figure out how to make it work at the end. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, it's um, kind of going to have it all, all tied together. It's just make Everything relates there. Yeah. So I don't really stop one thing to do the other, and I'll be able to keep on rolling through because I feel like it would really be a shame to just have to cut myself completely out of making knives or building guns, which is those are two things that I really enjoy. I could do nothing but them for the for the rest of my life. And be perfectly content with it. Yeah. So, well, I think we can tell by just how prolific you have been so far. I, I would hate to have to rip myself away from that. Especially it was kind of be a, it would make it, it kind of be a waste. I feel to have put a lot of time into it and then drop it. Yeah. So hope to be able to incorporate all of it together in the end. Well, Robert, is there anything that, uh, that you'd like to talk about that we maybe haven't, so far in our conversation here, I don't want to cut you off and, um, you know, stop you from saying something or that you need to say. Uh, I'm, I'm thinking, well, I don't really know. I'll tell you one thing I do. I do enjoy that. That is a little bit different from making knives and, and, and building rifles and making horns and bags. Things is, uh, pewter, <laughs> casting okay. pewter. I, I quite enjoy casting pewter. What are you and, casting? Uh, we cast with my grandmother's display. She she does a display and and sells like figures and jewelry and spoons at the North Carolina State Fair in the in the um in the village yesteryear in Raleigh. Okay, but for the most part, whenever we go to these historic sites and do demos and things. I normally end up with the pewter demonstration. So I end up casting a lot of 18th century style spoons, which is, I find that more fun than the figures. Of course, there's a <laughs> lot of cool little like 18th century style figures that you can cast and people love them. Yeah. They also spoons. And the, I think the best part is one of our molds is an original 18th century bronze mold. Really? So it's like, here I am, I'm getting to cast a spoon with an original mold. So I know that pattern's exactly right because it would have been cast. This is there are spoons existing that were cast out of this mold. <laughs> so that's that's something I always enjoy. And like I recently 
like we go down to Middleton Plantation in Charleston, and that's my demo there. And I'm out over a charcoal fire with a blow of brass blowpipe and casting pewter for the weekend. <laughs> but as of more recently, uh, the Living History Farm, L.W. Paul, L.W. Paul Living History Farm hosted the um, ALFAM conference, which is a American, it's the Association for Living History Farms and American Agricultural Museums. Okay. It's something like that. The Southeastern Conference was how we hosted it recently, and I had to do a session on that. So I had, I had like ten people, and I led them all through casting a spoon and and cleaning it. Wow! And that was a fun experience. It was it was kind of funny because my my Southeastern archaeology teacher was like, "I'll give you guys extra credit if you go to this um, conference because it's it's really local. It's in the same town as the college," and I was like. Well, um, I get I get extra credit. I'm I'm one of the I'm one of the demonstrators. <laughs> he was like, "Well, I reckon I'll have to give you extra credit." <laughs> the other people will probably just show up and leave, but I'll be there the whole time. Right. But pewter, pewter's fun, and of course, you can apply that to guns, nose caps, inlays, and the, the knives. I, that's they were so prolific on that. So you see so many pewter bolsters. Right. It's a not to copy them because they're they're not hard to do. You, you cut a collar on your handle. You get your handle fixed up, whether by for long-term uses sake, my knives are epoxied in. Okay. In, I, I put pins in them. Yeah. I, I might do a through tang and, and um, rivet it over on the end, but they are always also secured with epoxy because being modern technology and serving a modern audience who is, if, if they're going to be using these knives, they're going to be using them. Yeah. Secure them the best way possible. And it's, and that mechanical connection makes it that much better putting her and it just looks cool when you put a rivet in there and paint it over nice, pretty round head. Oh yeah. Looks so slick. But, <laughs> um, like I, I normally get my handle spit up, you know, you cut a, a, um, a collar on there just so you have it seated around the handle and it can't wobble. You cut your collar square so it's got nice corners in there so your your pewter doesn't ever, like, ring off because it's so soft. Okay. Hang, cut it. And if you did a lot of work and it'll, it might swivel on you, is, is my thinking behind it always. And get that collar on there, get you little corners and some notches so it can't move. Um, and you just cast it on there and file it and sand it smooth so that's the one thing is like pewter can i like to adapt things pewter spoons pewter bolsters pewter nose caps just all kinds of different directions you go with it right it's just kind of that the fluidity of the bolton pewter kind of allows it to be used in in so many aspects it just whatever you make your bolt your mold shape like it'll it'll make that shape for you but that's that's kind of i feel like that's how Many of these American gunsmiths would have been, or gun makers would have been, with a lot of them being repairing guns, especially in South Carolina, rather than building new ones. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, from South Carolina's perspective, uh, elsewhere, you know, there's a lot of guns being produced. But, you know, they were probably making all kinds of things because if you can make a make a functional rifle, especially if you're making the locks and everything. Oh yeah make anything you want to. <laughs> like <laughs> yeah. The, the, I believe in one of the Moravian books, it shows a coffee mill 
the 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 shop that um at, at uh, Christian Springs produced and like a bunch of gun makers and here they made a coffee mill and and they put a like a sliding patch box lid on the bottom of it. Yeah. And I was like, you know, it only makes sense to do a lot of trades if you're going to be a gun maker. Yeah. You know, be able to do a lot of things because that that I feel like that more accurately represents a colonial gun maker. Yeah, that kind of goes back to you know, what you said earlier. The, the the gun is kind of a larger canvas. Well, there, there's so many different skills that go into that larger canvas um, that can be practiced and, and executed elsewhere. So I, I totally agree. I'm gonna have to find that that little that coffee mill. That sounds cute as a button. I think it's in. I don't know if it's in one or two, but it's it's in the pages where there's a lot of words before the pictures. There's okay. a lot of it's somewhere nestled in there, like in their receipts, where they're like listing out how many barrels they made or how many barrels were sold, who owed what. Okay. Uh, it's hidden in there. Cool. Um, but yes, yeah, I mean, I'm sure I could think of other things to say, but as of right now, I think I think we're good. <laughs> <laughs> That's fine. That's fine, Robert. Yeah. I I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. I mean, I've. I've been following your work for a long time and, and, and talking to Ian, your name's come up a few times and it was just an yeah. absolute pleasure to, to be able to sit down and talk with you. And I, I hope to catch up with you some in person here at one of these shows someday. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'd like to thank Robert again for coming onto the show and chatting with us and, and sharing his story, his kind of family story. And then, you know, an extension of that, the, the story of those that have helped him along the way and, and the history of his local area. These are all things that keep him inspired and I think, you know, become a part of, of Robert's story as a maker and as an artist. And, and I think as you can tell from the enthusiasm in his voice, he gets really excited about this stuff, which is really encouraging. We, in muzzleloading, we often feel this is a very old sport and, and the membership and the, the participants in the community are getting old. And it's always sad when we do lose those friends and those family members that have, have kept muzzleloading going. But I do think it is encouraging to see young folks like Robert and to hear that his his friends aren't totally turned off by the prospect of, of what Robert is doing and they're intrigued and, and interested in it. I think there are many, many young folks out there just like Robert who are interested in muzzleloading and its associated crafts and the history of their local areas. And it's just about finding them and connecting them with the larger muzzleloading community. So I hope that this conversation not only encourages you to get out into your shop, get out into your garage, get some stuff and start making some stuff, but I hope it encourages you a little bit to reach out to some of the younger people in your community in your area or in your local muzzleloading community to just maybe touch base, you know, see if there's anything that you can do to help and encourage them like Robert's friends and family have for him. I think that's important. And I love just, I just love, love, love hearing uh, about Robert drawing on his notes while he's in class. It's something I certainly grew up doing. And, and I know many of, of my friends here in muzzleloading did as well. I think that's a uh, very encouraging. As always, Robert, keep your grades up. And if you do the same, you know, you're drawing in your school notes out there, please keep your grades up. 
But, um, you know, muzzleloading will always be there uh, when that last bell rings at the end of the day. That's all I have for you this week. Thank you so much uh, for listening. The feedback on the podcast here lately has just been incredible. Um, really can't thank enough all the guests that have been on. Um, I'd like to thank Robert again and, and all of our guests that have been on. It's really been uh, fantastic chatting with all of you and, and sharing these conversations. So thank you all so much uh, for the continued support of the podcast. I'm really excited about where we're going here in 2023 with the show. A lot of great guests lined up. As always, I'm Ethan. I love muzzleloading. Thank you so much for listening. We'll catch you next time.